Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander. And as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, the other day I was walking uh, down the streets of Shanghai and I saw a big sign in a restaurant saying fresh South African abalone. And (laughs) (laughs) that is not a good sign. Because when you see in in Shanghai, when one restaurant is really advertising that, you know that there are a hundred others also doing it. And if in Shanghai they're doing it, in Hong Kong they're doing it, in Hangzhou they're doing it, and really in all of the major cities. And abalone is one of those those delicacies, those foods that Chinese uh, you know restaurants and, and and really they just prize. And it's extraordinarily expensive. Uh, I heard uh, that it was running, you know, two thousand, three thousand are you know rand in uh, the equivalent of 3,000 rand or, you know, I don't know how much that is in dollars, but in, in, in Hong Kong restaurants. And so it brings up this issue that whenever there is a demand for a Chinese food product of some kind or natural resource that is uh, in Africa, uh, organized crime, illegal, you know, sourcing of it, nefarious, sketchy things are usually very, very close behind. And so abalone we're going to talk about today, and we're also going to talk about how abalone is, the trade in abalone is also touching into the trade in, of all things, donkey skins. How are those two connected, Kobus? Well, all of this is mafia connection. So the trade in abalone is 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 one of the oldest trades in, in illegal wildlife products um, that actually comes a little bit before, the, the a while before, the, the flowering of the ivory trade, for example. And so since I was a kid, I remember having seen reports about smuggles, the, the, the smuggling of abalone, and then also the same gangs then being related to the, the drug trade. Um, and so it's, it's organized crime is the link. You know, kind of as organized crime is finding new products and new markets in, in China, they, they tend to, to move over into new areas in South Africa. Um, and But how that actually works you know, remains a, a big mystery to me. Well, let's get a little bit of insight on that from somebody who's been covering it. Uh, Krimon de Greff is a freelance journalist uh, from Cape Town, South Africa. Uh, he's been writing about environmental crimes, the informal, the gray market trade, uh, I- immigration, illegal immigration, and conflict over natural resources. Um, I've been, uh, you know, pleased to be a source for him uh, in some of the work that he's done. Uh, some of his work has been featured in Al Jazeera, in Vice, and the, uh, the Mail and Guardian in South Africa, among many, many others. So, uh, Kimon, thank you for joining us, and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about this, um, you know, this, this black market trade in abalone. Uh, first of all, maybe before we get into the, the details of it, talk to us a little bit about abalone and why some people say abalone, some people say abalone. We'll go with abalone for I now. I think it's an American-British difference I okay think. i say abalone but uh you say abalone we'll, we'll, we'll so we'll, tomato tomato right um but uh talk to us first about the legal side of the trade and then how does that bleed then into the illegal side in the in the black market so uh, you mentioned when we started out seeing signs for fresh live abalone in uh, i think it was shanghai um that's that that's almost certainly legal and uh the stuff that gets sold illegally is, is typically dried um, but South Africa's been shipping abalone to, to Japan. Um, Japan was a major buyer, and 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 China and Hong Kong since uh, at least after World War II. Uh, there was a pretty 
pretty big um, legal fishery on on the coast south of Cape Town, and um, they they went through a kind of bit of a boom and bust. Uh, I think in the 70s they they over harvested. They were taking in over 2,000 tons a year, all for the export market, but abalone was exceptionally abundant. So old divers who, who used to recreationally dive or, or dive abalone uh, report sort of uh, cobbled street-style densities of, of this big shellfish blanketing the reefs uh, as far as the eye could see. Um, but even, even with that, it's a slow-maturing, uh, broadcast-spawning shellfish and and so in about the 70s, the, the legal trade went into a period of of quota cuts for the first time. And by the I think by the 1980s, they had a pretty stable fishery where they were taking out 600 to 700 tons a year, making adjustments according to what the fishery scientists were saying. And that, that, that pretty much lasted until this, the explosion of, of poaching, uh, which kind of started in the 70s and the 80s, but really took off in the 1990s to the point where well over 2,000 tons are getting shipped every year now uh, from South Africa, but it's up to about 3,000 tons a year. And uh, that's more than 10 times the total legal catch. One of the things that always puzzled me about uh, about the abalone trade is why um, whether it's impossible to to do any form of aqua farming with with abalone, or must it be must the, the abalone be wild and uh, um, and therefore you know subject to falling wild stocks, or is it possible to do any form of, of abalone farming? Oh, it's very possible to farm. It's the fastest growing sector, aquaculture sector in South Africa. It's worth uh, like I, I I read a figure yesterday that it's worth over seventy million dollars a year. Um, I wasn't sure if that was including kind of indirect economic activity in terms of employment and stuff. And uh, right now I have two dried farmed South African abalone on my desk that I bought in Hong Kong. Um, so, so, so there is a, a large, a large growth in, in farming in there. I mean, I'm not, I'm not an aquaculturist. I, I believe as with any aquaculture, it's, it's, it's capital intensive and quite technical. But uh, they are producing tons and tons every year. But the there's still a market that that's way in excess of of what South Africa's tiny legal fishing, abalone fishing sector and farm sector provides. So the, the that gap is made up of poached wild products. So to to put a kind of a finer point on that, is there the potential if South Africa really scales up their their aquaculture to to eventually overwhelm that that poaching market, or is or is is the the market for poached abalone this kind of unique thing that will always survive? Well, well, it won't always survive because eventually the wild abalone resource will run out. It's it's been much more resilient than uh, some fishery scientists were predicting commercial extinction of abalone more than fifteen years ago, and uh, it's 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 still kind of astounding that that divers are pulling out pretty large abalone from areas that have been dived illegally for more than twenty years. But inevitably, that uh, the the level of fishing cannot be sustained. So, so that's not always going to be the case. Um, what the kind of total market size for abalone is is something I don't really know. But I was in Hong Kong recently, and there's uh, a staggering volume of abalone on sale. And and my understanding is that with the growth of the middle class in China. Um, 
there's uh, and and sort of aspirational tendencies towards status foods in Cantonese cuisine. Uh, I understand that that market is growing, and um, so definitely, definitely by the time our wild resources. Uh, no longer viable. Whenever that is, I, I don't know if farming will will be able to scale up quickly enough for that. And and I believe the market will be there anyway for for a diver who wants to oh. slip in and and deal a few shells. That brings up a very interesting point. You were just in Hong Kong. Have you spent any time in China either? Well, I went up to uh, to Shandong Province where the donkey skin Jiao or Jiao. I don't. My pronunciation is terrible. Uh, where the donkey skin manufacturing industry is concentrated for three days. But other than that, no, okay. it was all based in Hong Kong. Well, it brings up a very good point. And you've, you've been covering and studying wildlife issues and conservation for, for quite some time. And it brings up this question of whether or not there's anything that will be able to keep up with Chinese demand. So no matter how many donkeys there are, no matter how many pangolins there are, no matter how many abalones there are, it still will never be enough for this population of middle-class consumers who, again, they don't necessarily understand where the products come from, just the same way that the average American Walmart consumer doesn't understand where those T-shirts come from or the toys come from. They just go to the store, they buy it, and they assume the, the best. Most people are. They don't even think about it. And so I'm wondering what your reflections are on this in terms of the fate of so much African wildlife, whether it's in the lion bones, pangolins, ivory, rhino horn. There's a list that is just seemingly endless. And it's so scary when you see the scale of Chinese demand. Um, and, and I'm not really sure there's that much that can be done about it because China is such a vast country. Africa obviously has a lot of poverty issues. So there's going to be a, an ability to create a black market if you want to. And there will not be the necessary enforcement or consistent enforcement across the continent. So there will be a way to get this out. What's your thought in terms of the sustainability of this, of what's going on today? So, so I want to answer your question by, by initially not answering your question, because, um, and I'll explain why. So reporting on this story, the Abalone story in particular in South Africa, um, has taught me over the years that there's an immense xenophobic pushback against China in South Africa, which... Uh, Unfortunately, much of my reporting ends up being incorporated into, and that's not something that I really want to stand behind. So there are huge issues with uh, Chinese China's spreading resource footprint and and the lacks of checks and balances on its staggering number of supply chains, no doubt. But within the context of South Africa, um, there's a bigger more important story for me as a journalist here, which is reporting on how and why the magnitude of illegal trade in Abalone that we're seeing has managed to evolve or be necessary to evolve. And, and, and people in South Africa, instead of engaging with some of those uh, sometimes uncomfortable discussions, are more comfortable playing a, uh, a blame game on China. So, so I'm I'm happy to discuss both sides because they're both important parts of the story. But abalone is found in many other countries besides South Africa. There's abalone in Australia, the United States, and uh, there's abalone poaching in those countries. But it tends to be what 
poaching was in South Africa 25 or 30 years ago. Small groups of opportunistic kind of guys, as far as I understand. Not what we have here, which is wholesale, extensive, syndicated, uh, illicit trade that, that, that ends up becoming a, a major component of, of marginalized coastal fishing communities, for example. So there's really kind of this perfect storm in South Africa where the conditions were so ripe for an illegal trade to establish. And, and you said it in your question uh, that similar conditions exist across the continent. And until we start discussing those, to me, it's almost irrelevant what China does or doesn't buy because those conditions are there and, and I'm going to be waiting for somebody else to, to come and, and, and make a buck of it. Um, I don't know if I'm, if I'm making sense. No, you are. Sense and, in and Cobus, let me, let, me, let me put a question to you and your observation on this, because you and I for the past eight years have been talking about Chinese demand for one African wildlife product after another. And it, with the exception of ivory, for the most part, it, does, it hasn't gotten really much better. Do you think it's a supply or a demand question? That is, should we count on the Chinese to crack down or should we count on African governments to take better control of their custom service, their environmental protection? What has to happen in order for this, this balance to set in so that we don't have the disequilibrium that we have today where Chinese demand is just sucking up so many African products, illegal or legal, but to the detriment of the environment? I tend to I tend to go with with Kimon's you know like the, the way I understand Kimon's kind of perspective on this is that um, it, it might be it might not be enough to just simply look for mechanisms either on the African or the Chinese side. I think that you know generally the Chinese side tends to be better with with implementing these kind of mechanisms as we as we've seen um, with the with the ivory domestic ivory ban that's coming up. Um, the the issue seems to me to that, that we need to ask a lot of very hardcore questions in Africa about why each time this kind of demand comes up in China, it ha there's a, a kind of a, a mafiaizing organized crime response in Africa. Um, it's something that goes deeper than than simply the mechanisms that, that are not in place in African states or, or customs or ports. Um, it's something to do with that uh, that has to do with, with African societies. Um, and, and I think I think kind of simply thinking of Africa as a place that's being robbed and not not as a place that's being that's actively complicit in the exporting of these resources, that is where the problem lies. Um, Kimon, I don't know if you agree. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, just the, the important part of this discussion when it comes to Abalone is that um, it, it, it probably is by an order of magnitude in some places the largest sort of employer in in coastal areas where fisheries policy and other kind of employment options are actively excluding people who have earned a living from the sea. Now, the story is bigger than that, and there's organized crime involvement, and there's there's all sorts of greedy profiteering happening, but but the guys going into the water to take the abalone out that starts this long black market journey onto a plate in Hong Kong or further uh, is often motivated by short-term economic desperation. And um, just last week, I reported a story here where I was speaking to divers who swim three kilometers out to an island uh, in the town of Hansbai, which is marketed as the great white shark capital of the world. They do shark cage diving 
And these divers swim out to the island for Abalone and back, um, crossing sort of arguably the most dangerous shark waters in the world. Um, and every couple of years, one of them gets eaten. I met a guy whose cousin had been eaten in front of him sort of three weeks before, uh, at least the fifth in a decade. Now, this is an extreme, extreme, extreme story and 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 probably uh, not representative of all abalone poaching at all. But uh, that's that's where the money is going and that's what the money is driving. Um, and, and a lot of those stories, at least in South Africa, kind of get condensed into a narrative of greedy poachers and uh, greedy Chinese. And... Um, there's, there's harder questions to ask in South Africa about. Yeah, but that's the same story in many other wildlife crimes as well. When you look at rhino poaching and elephant poaching, the people actually doing the killing of the animal uh, are getting pennies on the dollar compared to what the middlemen are getting. Um, and in, in very much, it's like the drug trade as well. The guy selling the crack on the corner, the cocaine or the marijuana uh, is, is making 4%, if that on the total sale and 96% is going to the traffickers and to the cartels. So that, that it, and it's, it, it and, feeds and off the, the poverty. And in the process, you know, there, there's always this tendency to want to pathologize the demand, you know, to, to, to pretend that Chinese people are just crazy for wanting abalone or just crazy for wanting, for wanting um, like, you know, ivory art objects. Whereas in other, in, in many other cases, demand is simply not questioned you know um that that you know people people in the u.s for example don't question themselves about wanting hardwood floors no matter where those floors come from um but in certain cases especially in the case of china there is this tendency to to monsterize all kind of chinese consumption yeah. which i think is itself a, a, a you know kind of betrays a lot of anxiety about about you know the 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 threat of of a richer china to the this kind of hegemony of white people actually in the world well it's also i mean it's no different to me than a than a cell phone and everybody now has a cell phone but that colton that comes from the mines in the drc the lithium ion that comes from the from peru and you, you know obviously the manufacturing of it in china under very questionable circumstances um, really leads a lot of people to be complicit in consuming devices and products and, that are made under, you know, terrible circumstances. This is probably very, very similar. Uh, Kimon, you know, how do we, you know, if we want to end our discussion to get people to start thinking about abalone. Abalone does not have cute eyes. They're not furry. They're not, uh, they're not going to be on, on a postage stamp. There's never going to be a telethon for abalone. Um, so this is going to be one of those animals that doesn't get the type of treatment that the, that the rhinos will get or a baby seal will get in the North Pole. Or, you, you know, so what, what, what do you want people to think about when you do your journalism and your writing and the stories that you're creating about the abalone trade and these types of wildlife trades that have an illicit, illegal component to it? There is a violence piece of it that you talked about as well. What, what's the takeaway here? Well, um, well, firstly, abalone, uh, they, they do have quite cute little eyes. They, they peek up from under the moon. Um, I always associate the and, shells with ashtrays. Yeah, they, they do make good ashtrays. Um, but uh, quite frankly, I, I have a conservation background, and, and I, I got into abalone research for my master's um, and sort of turned 180 degrees in terms of uh, I kind of went in to explore this pressing conservation crisis. And to be honest, I got 
way more interested in the, the, the unrelenting social crisis that's sort of a fact of daily life in South Africa. Uh, you know, we have the highest income inequality in the world or thereabouts. And um, so uh, when it comes to saving the abalone resource, I, I end up disappointing a lot of conservation biologists because it's not, it's certainly not my number one concern. Um, losing a species is bad for biodiversity. And um, abalone were by far the most prevalent kind of subtitle organism, probably had some ecosystem role. No one really knows because the studies that began to find out when poaching took off, uh, the baseline shifted so quickly because the stocks dropped so fast. So, so there definitely are a bunch of completely undesirable things and a lot of undesirable social impacts of the trade as well in terms of consolidating uh, the presence of of gangs who sell drugs in fishing communities, um, big violent turf wars, occasional assassinations, uh, you know, any sort of stuff that's part and parcel of, of a very valuable black market. But uh, when I do this reporting, I like people to walk away with uh, a little bit more understanding of the context that the trade happens in. And, and uh, by reducing it to, to a story of, of greedy Chinese and greedy poachers, I, I think not only we do a sort of disservice to, to you know, sharing the story, but, but we also lose out on the actual story, which, which is remarkable. And, and that's why I keep writing about Evelyn, because I think it's completely bizarre that uh, economics and politics and culture combine in this insanely globalized trade of, of a shellfish, an obscure shellfish from South Africa that ends up uh, going through these, this convoluted smuggling kind of network and ends up on a plate somewhere halfway around the world that, without focusing on the full dimensions of that story, including how the illicit trade in that has become established in this particular country way more than any other, uh, it's just sort of uh, doesn't do great service to the story. So, um, you know, there's there's a social justice element to it for me, but there's also just a, a, a journalist's kind of uh, desire to, to, to paint the full picture. Um, in terms of fixing this trade, there's a there's one there's one thing that people are talking about which which has uh, some potential and that's reseeding wild stocks with with abalone grown in in farms so taking little baby abalones back and putting them on the rocks uh, that only works under a kind of private security regime where people take ownership of the rocks and patrol and keep keep poachers out and because it's capital intensive and because you need access to the the kind of a uh, skills to, 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 to rear abalone facilities and put them on the rocks, that ends up just being sort of even more exclusive and um, sort of, yeah, it's like an exacerbation of the, of the issues in the fisheries that, that drove people to poach in the first place. Um, so, so it doesn't seem to me like a long-term fix for the, for the issues, but at least there's, you know, some kind of chance for, for abalone to be grown in the wild and for people to keep, keep making money from it. But my concern is that with aquaculture and this ranching, the people making money off it or said to make money off it are by and large not uh, brown South Africans who actually need the money more than anybody else. Sure, interesting. Well, Kimon de Grief is a freelance journalist based in Cape Town, South Africa, and does some fantastic reporting on environmental crime, social justice, informal trades, immigration, natural resources. Now he's working on 
uh, donkey skins and abalone. So and the trade with China and, uh, you know, it's really fascinating reporting. Uh, Kimon, thank you so much for taking the time to share some of your experiences with us. Such a pleasure. Um, if anyone's interested, I'm currently co-writing a book on the abalone trade with a man who poached for 20 years or so. Um, and even after five years, the kind of insights that I'm getting from, from one man who actually participated, operated within that revenue stream and within that trade is, is remarkable. So that that's occupying me for the next six months. And, Fantastic. Uh, and if yeah, people want to follow in the meantime what you're doing, are you on Twitter or social media? I am. I'm, I'm not very good at Twitter, but I have a Twitter account, um, and it's just my name, at Kimon de Grief, or Grief. Um, and then I have my website. People can drop me a mail on kimondg at gmail.com. And I'm always interested in chatting to, to folks studying some of the trades, uh, people with stories to share, uh, yeah, really anyone. And, and China, Africa analysts as well. This is, you know, going to Hong Kong and seeing the demand side of the story was mind-blowing. Yeah, it just it's very different. Totally I'm different perspective. Uh, let me just spell Kimon's yeah. name for everybody for you if you want to look him up on Twitter. K-I-M-O-N-D-E-G-R-E-E-F. Not G-R-I-E-F. G-R-E-E-F. Right? And you, all of that one word on Twitter and you can find him. And again, reach out if you're interested in the abalone trade or China-Africa uh, environmental issues. I, I, Kimon is, a, is an excellent resource for all that. So thank you so much for joining us, Kimon. Such a pleasure. Thank you. Kobus, the most interesting part of the discussion is really what Kimon talked about was the understanding of the global supply chain and this idea that when you're sitting here in Shanghai or you're in Hong Kong and you're having dinner and there's a plate of abalone there, how does it get to you? And, and I think he brought up this point, which most people don't ever think about it or understand it. And there's this incredibly complicated supply chain. Sometimes it's illicit. Sometimes it's legal. But it, it's the same for that, that T-shirt, that iPhone, as I was talking about, uh, and so many products now that have you know, global supply chains. And so African wildlife products and natural resources that end up here in China on plates and on clothes and on, you know, at, you know, I'm sitting at a, at an Ikea table here in my kitchen and I'm wondering, did this, did the wood come from Africa? Very possibly. Uh, so understanding these supply chains is so critical. Yes, I, I, I agree. And then also to, to, um, to see it in context, um, on both both on the demand side and the supply side, I think is so important. And to you know to 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 look at the the complex social networks that that make it that enable things like the, the growth of organized crime, for example, around this demand, is is incredibly important. Much much more research needs to be done about that. Yeah, and generally, what you pointed out is that whenever you hear the vilification of one side or the other, or the victimization in the case of the African side and the vilification on the Chinese side, typically those narratives end up being far too simplistic. And I think that's where yeah. a lot of it kind of falls down. So you see this on Facebook quite a bit and on social media, people will take one side or the other, and that usually usually doesn't tell the whole story. So, well, Kobus, that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. Of course, you and I will be back again next week with another with another episode. Until then, we would love for people to sign up for our newsletter. It goes out every Monday. It's got the, you know, five or six top headline stories that Kobus and I curate over the weekend. We make it easy for you to follow China Africa News without having to go and spend all that time on Twitter and Google and, 
you know, the search engines and everything else that we do every day, um, we're kind of neurotic that way and we like it. So let us do the work for you. Head over to our Facebook page at facebook.com slash China Africa Project. You can sign up for the newsletter there. Uh, easier way, of course, is just go to our website at chinaafricaproject.com. Right there in the top, you can just plug in your email address and we'll then put you on the list and send you our newsletter every Monday. Uh, it comes Monday morning Eastern time here in Asia. It's in the afternoon. So uh, really, it's quite useful. So we're, we're very proud of it and very happy with it. And we'd love for you to join in it. So that'll do it. We'll talk to you again next week. For Kobus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show or follow China Africa News that's updated every four hours, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Stadenesk or Eric at Eolander. That's E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. Subscribe to the China Africa podcast on iTunes or download the mobile apps for iOS, Android, or Windows Phone. Just head over to your favorite store and search for China Africa. China Africa.